Thanks for listening to Coach Your Brains Out. Here's part two of our interview with Steve Bain on motor learning and its applications in volleyball. Welcome to Coach Your Brains Out, the show that explores learning from the top minds in volleyball and beyond. With your hosts, John Mayer, Billy Allen, Andrew Fuller, and Nils Nielsen. All right, we got another question from a patron. This one's from Will Buchanan at Mad Sand Beach Club. He asks, uh, the biggest learning curve for my beginner sand players is reading the serve. What keys or drills would you suggest to use to accelerate the learning process for rece- for reading the serve? Um, well, the first thing is, you know, the um, it, neither the process of learning uh, nor the progress as we learn are linear. Okay. There um, it's, you know, it's going to be all over the place. Um, but if, if you can assume that you've already trained the passers, how to identify the content rich areas that will help them improve uh, reading the serve then it comes down to manipulating the environment uh, to maximize the quality of the repetitions. I do think that it, it might be help. you know, video could be helpful for, for some of these kinds of activities. But, you know, getting out um, in different conditions uh, and having quality reps with, you know, the right kind of, of feedback. Um, uh, you know, John Kessel and I have had lots of discussions in, in this area, just this idea of, of guided discovery. And I, and I think that really the, the, the science of coaching is one thing, but the art comes in identifying the, the challenge point uh, not just for a team, but for an individual athlete. And the challenge point is um, uh, just arranging the practice environment so that there is just the right amount of new information that will stretch the learner. So but it can't be too much information. If it's too much information, like with little kids, you're going to overwhelm the system's ability to respond. So for all of us that have coached little kids, the first volleyball that goes over the net, uh, what happens to it? They all stand there and watch it drop in the middle of the court, okay? Because, you know, just the volleyball coming over the net overwhelms their ability to respond. So... um so that whole idea is has been referred to as a challenge point hypothesis. Um, and it's, you know, in our practice, you know, we'll quite often we'll have a, we'll have the, we will, not quite often, um, we have a challenge point in just about every activity. You know, the, the goal, what, what is the goal of this particular activity? What's our standard? What is it we're trying to achieve? Uh, and, and then we compare the result with, um, uh, against that benchmark. 
And what I have found in the past is I'll come up, I'll come up with some great idea for an activity, but it'll turn out to be awful. And usually it's because I've screwed up the challenge point. I haven't structured the environment uh, uh, appropriate to, to the learner. Um, and then I'll just scrap it and just um, move on to the next thing. But it kind of, you know, uh, Will's question also just goes back to um, what we've talked about, you know, what is it that expert um, passers are looking at versus novice passers? Um, and, and so just, just structuring the environment in such a way to get really high quality reps. And, you know, I've got kids, you know, on my team that are just fabulous at, you know, making angles and shaping early and, and reading the server. And I have some others that, um, you know, couldn't pass the offering plate at church. I mean, they just can't do it. So um, it's just really important to, to have that training environment structured in such a way that it's going to, you know, optimize their opportunities to respond. And you mentioned uh, the information rich zones of the head and shoulders. I guess just yeah. as we leave, before we leave this question, can you maybe talk about what specifically you advise your passers to look for there? Um, sure. I mean, we, we say, you know, the very first thing is where is, where is the server standing? Um, or if they're not standing, are they running and jumping? Where are they looking? What is the direction of their approach? Uh, and then um, we want them to focus on the arm swing and contact. Um, spin equals direction. Um, you know, once that thing starts floating, it gets a lot tougher to to read. And so you, you know, in order to, to do that, you really have to study, you know, how much, how much shoulder torque, um, do they have as they, as they prepare, you know, what is the speed, you know, of their, um, of their arm, you know, all of those, and, you know, that's where that's, that's to read the serve early. If you're, if you're waiting to when the ball has left the server's hand, I think it's it's too late at our level. And you mentioned challenge point. What's a what's an a appropriate say success level to find the right challenge point? Like if someone is, yeah, I don't know, out of ten, four out of ten, seven out of ten. What's the right number you're looking for? Um, not sure. I for 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 what for serving? Oh, or? Uh, I guess for any skill. Like, how do you know it's the right? like challenge point, like what's the, like how, how much should they be failing or succeeding? Um, well, when, when I say, um, well, for example, let's say, you know, we have an activity that, um, we call, um, toolbox challenge or even one, even one more simple than that. we, we have something we call a mindful meter in practice. So when we are playing, when we're having games and small group activities, 
we will run a mindful meter um, and we'll keep track of kills and errors. Okay. And so, um, so you have, you're playing Monarch, let's say, and you're competing across the net and really a really good team will have a mindful meter after it's all said and done of plus three or plus four, which means that I have um, four more kills than I have errors. So I also coach a U16 club team. I don't think we've been positive yet, okay, when we play those games. where It's minus three, minus two. Um, but slowly but surely, you know, we're improving. And so the challenge point is going to change depending upon the level of your team. And so, um, you know, when I think of, you know, when I think of um, the challenge point for um, our serve receive, you know, it's going to be, hey, we, we want to be 5% reception errors in this activity. We don't want to be over 5% reception errors. Or uh, if we are playing toolbox challenge, um, the only way you can score points is by using your toolbox. You don't get any points for a clean kill. So, um, so the challenge point is using your toolbox. And then we can... And then we can measure how many points you, you get um, uh, in your toolbox. In fact, when we when we have our kids evaluate film, uh, we send them, and I'm talking about match film. You know, we'll send them um, the clips of their swings, and then we'll ask them to calculate their toolbox uh, because we're, you know, that's something that we want to get good at. It's, you know, it's really hard to get clean kills at our level. It's really hard to train kids to use a block. And as you know, you know, at the higher levels, every time you, you try to hit around the block, um, somebody's going to dig it and the other team's going to make you pay. And so you have to acquire that skill or you're not going to be successful. Yeah, I don't know if that makes answers your question, but that's kind of what I'm thinking. It's probably a better answer than my question was, so <laughs> that's good. Uh, do you think warm-ups, be- say, before a match, are a good time for blocked reps since they often make athletes feel confident? Um, we never do that. I, you know, I, I think what, what um, I've mentioned once, what, what we've done in pre-practice, I mean, that's, that's block training, and, you know, we – we want them, I guess you could say, we want them to work on their craft. If they're a, if they're a hitter or if they're a setter or a libero or whatever. So that's then they get to work on the, the, the little details of their craft. But, you know, when we get on the court, all of our warmups are going to be some kind of a dynamic game like activity. And, and more often than not, we, would have the kids warm up on different courts to maximize the opportunities to respond. And then we'll, you know, we create standards 
for for those different activities and as that you know maybe a certain number of uh contacts in a row if we're exchanging um kind of de- it kind of depends on the activity and then um uh and then once you know then once they once you create these standards and as uh, the kids get proficient at the basic skills, they achieve their standards and that's what gives them confidence. That, I mean, that's, that would be my approach. We, I just have never thought in terms of blocked reps, you know, giving someone confidence because based on the research, that would be a false confidence because we know that those blocked activities, they might look great, but they don't, they don't transfer so well. I guess I'm talking about um, how much more effective variable is than blocked. If you did, did have two teams and team A did majority blocked reps and team B did majority variable, I mean, both teams would both teams get better? How far behind would the blocked reps be? How, we, how would you measure that? Um, you know, I don't – I think it would be challenging to do quantitatively. Um Qualitatively, you could go back to the categories of specificity and you would get some, at least with the block training, you would be able to come up with some um, metric for what sort of percentage of your activities are, are going to transfer. So it's, it's not that you don't improve with block training. If you read the literature, you know, people that use block training, you know, they do improve, but um, that improvement is significantly less than the improvement that is experienced with variable practice. So, you know, all things being equal, the team practicing under variable conditions will improve significantly more. Uh, and um, and if if I'm coaching the variable team and you're coaching the block team, you're going to lose. Um, and I don't, you know, I, I have an interesting anecdote. It's it's not a scientific study, but my first coaching job was as as a JV coach, and I. I knew just enough about random training to be drink, to be dangerous, but I was training my JV team, uh, you know, variable practice. And I would look at the varsity court and they would, they would do blocking for 20 minutes. They would do hitting for 20 minutes. They would do serving for 20 minutes. They would do passing for 20 minutes. They would do defense for 20 minutes. And then, and then they would scrimmage us and, we had to quit scrimmaging them because the JV team was beating them all the time. So, um, so I, you know, I, I, I just, you know, I struggle with the, you know, the idea that, um, well, we do block training and we're successful. I I think that it's a misleading uh, conclusion because it might be that you're getting better in spite of, how you're training, not because of how you're training. So if, if I understand 
you know, these laws of learning and the principles of specificity and how skills transfer, then I want my teams to get better because of how we're training, not in spite of how we're training. Got it. And I guess just on talking about that in the same lines, I hear this a lot. Um, people argue the best players in the world spend so much time on blocked reps. Um, you know, I don't know whether it's John Hyden hitting so many cut shots or Steph Curry doing yeah. his, his dribbling. Are they, um, are they, are they training wrong? Would, be, would they be that much better if they were just doing all variable? Like, I guess, how do you, how do you argue against when you see so many great players more blocked? And I guess, is it, I don't know, it just sounds weird for us to be like, oh, volleyball has the secret that all these major sports don't have. Um, well, I mean, when you get to be that level of an expert, again, you know, when I think of Seth Curry and, you know, the stuff that he's doing, okay, um, you know, there's, there's lots of similarity in the muscular coordination, there's lots of similarity in the biomechanical structure of what he's doing. The sensory patterns are similar. Quite often, the functional goal is the same. Um, maybe the energy systems aren't quite right. The emotion, the affect is probably not quite right. But, you know, but at that level, how much more are you going to squeeze out of, the, out of the system, you know, in terms of adaptation and change? Right. And so I think, you know, um, a really interesting paper just came out uh, and and um, and it was um, published by um, this Portuguese scientist. That's really his name is Duarte Aujo and and Ian Renshaw, Keith Davids. Maybe you've heard of these guys, but um, they studied. Brazilian soccer and it's hard to argue that Brazilian soccer isn't you know some of the best soccer players in the world but what they studied so they they wanted they asked this question why are the Brazilians so good and you know I don't know how Brazilians train their soccer teams but what they did find out is that um, in Brazil there's this uh, informal, unstructured play uh, that everyone in the country plays, you know, from the time they're little uh, until they're adults. And it's called Paleta. And Paleta is just, it's just street soccer. And, and this street soccer uh, is what they identified as the reason that the Brazilian style of play uh, is at such a high level. And, and so, um, you know, Seth Curry, notwithstanding, um, I think, you know, you could, you know, you could also talk about the Brazilian volleyball team. I mean, they, they've been really good. And I know they do a lot of high rep, uh, blocked practices. Um, but, there's not a shred of evidence to suggest that their gold medals uh, are a result of how they train. You could just as easily argue that they won their medals in spite of the way they trained. You know, in fact, if they're so good and their training is so great, they should have won all these gold medals, right? Mm -hmm. 
And I think a better question is how in the heck has a country with so few indoor programs won three gold medals? That doesn't make any sense. Um, um, But we know how the USA men have trained, you know, over the last three decades. They've been using, you know, these motor learning principles. And And why was it that we had, you know, um, one of the most popular sports in our country and women is volleyball, but they didn't have success on the national stage and on the international stage. And so they started training using the same principles as the men. So to me, those are, those are, you know, those are pretty good pieces of evidence about, um, the, the power of, of variable practice and, and specificity. Uh, and when you mentioned, I guess, like how much more are you going to squeeze out of it? Uh, it made me think about, I guess, lo- oftentimes a block drill might not be as demanding as a full-on game-like mode. So maybe like if you just got some extra, you know, Hyden goes out there and gets a bunch of hits with his cut shot or setting triangle, maybe it's not going to transfer as much, but there's only so much you can scrimmage and so if you're just doing kind of a little, if you're doing a little extra blocked because it's not yeah. wearing and tearing your body, I could see an advantage. Yeah, I yeah, I agree. Maybe working on that cut shot in a blocked format, you can squeeze out two or three percent. You can try something uh that is new and unfamiliar to the system and have an aha moment. So for sure, that happens. What do you think about um, from like a training block perspective? Say, okay, I'm committed to varied practice, uh, but does it make more sense kind of long term? Like, okay, this week we're going to really focus on passing, even though we're going to do, you know, we're going to play volleyball, I'll practice, but the focus and the feedback is going to be on passing. And then next week we'll go to spiking. Or does it make more sense to, to alternate day by day? Or even within a day, do I, do I want to have three different focuses? A lot of questions there. Yeah. Um, gosh, I don't know. Somewhere, someone somewhere once told me that you prepare with the end in mind. So, um, we, you know, the, from the very beginning, um, you know, we, we know that serving and passing can make up for, a whole lot of ills. Okay, so so my U sixteen team, we we won we won three out of four matches this last weekend, and and I think we hit negative. Okay, so so we must have served and passed. Okay, so we you know serving and passing is it's just like in every single activity that we do. I mean, it's a constant emphasis. It's a constant focus. It's going to be, it'll be a theme of, of what we do, um, this spring. But, um, so that's always, that's always going to be an emphasis, you know, because, you know, serving, I mean, if you have a good serving team, the odds that you're going to have a good passing team are going to improve. If you have a, if you're a little bit better at passing, then there's an opportunity that 
uh, your setting's going to be a little bit better. If your setting's a little bit better, your attacking is going to be a little bit better. And now my offense is good, and that puts pressure on my defense to get a little bit better. So, you know, volleyball is it's got all these contingent variables linked to one another. And so, so um, we don't, you know, we, you know, that serving passing thing is, is just a continuous theme. And then for us, we divide our season into like four different, um, four different phases. Um, but you know, that the emphasis doesn't change from one phase to the next necessarily. Um, not sure I answered your question other than to say that, uh, I don't know how much time we're spending on serving and passing, but it's probably enough, not enough. Got to spend more. And, and then we're gonna, um, and then we're going to build all those other things into our systems. Got a, another patron question from Parker. He asks, do visualization reps transfer? Um, Um, you know, I'm not sure I know the answer to that. I think, you know, my, my understanding of that literature is, is that there's a lot of ambiguity. Um, and the ambiguity probably comes from this, this idea that we used to think of, um, motor programs as, images that can be stored in the brain and um it's it's not true um and the reason it's not true is our your brain would have to be the size of pluto to be able to store all those images because of all the possible um movements that are available to you so it's a storage problem. So that's not the way that the brain stores the information. You know, what we do know is that if, if you're a volleyball player and you're watching a volleyball match, um, the, the same areas that, um, that are responsible for the movements you are watching uh, demonstrate increased activity just by watching a volleyball match. Now, you know, whether or not there's transfer there, I don't know. Uh, There is some literature to suggest that there might be, but again, I think that there's some ambiguity there. Only if you're visualizing varied reps, right? Not blocked reps. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, something like that. (laughs) <laughs> well, yeah. Speaking of low impact reps, just watching video, then. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, there's some actually um, some really interesting stuff starting to come out in uh, artificial intelligence. So stay tuned. Mm. We'll see. All right. Our next episode: Terminator volleyball. Um, <laughs> hey, so. I know you've written about the value of mixing your team um, instead of playing an A side versus B side all the time. Why is this the case? Uh, and how often should you mix your teams? 
Well, that, um, I, you know, I wrote a blog post once for, for gold medal because, and the origin of that was I was using a cauldron and I became really concerned that, you know, because I wasn't playing my, I, I became concerned that I wasn't playing my starters together enough. And so I, so I really began to question this idea of using a cauldron. So a cauldron to us is where everybody is going to play with and against everybody else. And so um, at any one time, you know, if, if, if we have three different activities in practice, um, the teams in each one of those activities is going to be different. So that's how much we mix. But, but at the time, I was really curious about whether there was any science out there, whether there was scientific evidence to support this idea about team mixing. And so um, Google is a wonderful thing. So I just started searching on some of the uh, work that was out there. And I came across, um, actually, there was quite a bit, but most notably were um, was a... Uh, Jamie Gorman and, and Nancy Cook. And at the time, I think they might have been at Arizona State University. I think Cook is still at Arizona State, if I'm, I'm not mistaken. But anyway, they were they had money from the Department of Defense to study high-performing teams. And they were studying something called team cognition. So this, this idea that, you know, part, you know, there's – there's individual cognition, but when you're working together as a team, your your decision making, your brains are kind of linked together. So, so it's really an area of psychology that's focused on how uh, cognitive activity is distributed across individuals, um, and and as well, you know, not just how that's distributed, but, um, what is the role of that, you know, as they're working together to achieve, uh, common goals. Anyway, what they, they did a study and they compared teams whose members were mixed versus teams that had no change in membership. So they had these mixed teams and then they had these intact teams. And what was fascinating was that um, at the end of the study, the the mixed teams uh, performed much better in the retention test. And so it was a problem-solving task that they had to work together to solve. And the mixed teams outperformed the intact teams in every category, which was really kind of surprising, but, but one of the ways that um, they explained that result was that um, a lot like variable practice, the mixing the teams increased the uh, ability of the group to, to solve a broader range of problems more creatively. Uh, it was kind of as simple as that, that it, it just expanded the, the solution space, if you will. 
And so those teams were more successful. Um, I think independent of that, you know, Carl would always say a rising tide lifts all boats. And the way we think of that for us is, you know, we're not as good as the best player in our gym. You know, we're, we're somebody between somewhere between the best player and the not so best. And so, you know, the, you know, the, the better we all are, you know, the higher level, you know, we can train. And so, you know, by mixing teams, you know, every play, every day, week after week, month after month, um, everybody gets a lot better. And uh, it, you know, and, and because we use a, a cauldron, it also contributes to the kind of the mental health of the team because, uh, you know, everybody believes, you know, they're getting the same opportunity that everyone else is. I mean, if you're, if you're always stuck on the scrubs, you know, how are you, you know, where's my opportunity to, to move up? And so, um, it, it, it was kind of funny. I mean, when I was coaching high school, we didn't start winning state championships until I went all in on the cauldron. And then, and, um, you know, I just felt like our, you know, our, you know, our ability to train at a higher level, uh, just because the ability went up, uh, enabled us to, to become one of the best programs in the state. And I guess, how would you see the mixing? Um, does it apply to beach where you don't ever sub in people? You're kind of stuck with the same guy the whole time. I guess, how do you balance the creativity you might find from playing with different people um, to like knowing your partner's set and how to play D behind his specific block and stuff? Yeah, I think that's kind of cool. That's a cool question. Um, um, you know, I mean, how do you... I'm not a beach player, but I, I suppose when you practice beach, there's another team. Yeah. And it's like a hundred percent us versus them. You never, you never really mix it. Usually, usually the enemy. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I, you know, heck on our team. Um, we, we try to play. Um, we have, we have an ongoing doubles ladder the whole season. So, I mean, if you had four people that, you know, were training each other, you could, you know, one and two could play three and four. One and three could play two and four. One and four could play two and three. I mean, and just do that from time to time. I, you know, I can't imagine that it wouldn't um, be a benefit based on we know what we know about the impact of variable practice and some of the benefits of of these activities. I mean, I just think, I mean, what's so funny about team mixing. So, you know, every Thursday or, you know, either Wednesday or Thursday, depending upon when we travel, we always, you know, we always roll out, you know, the starters for that week and we will play at least one set, you know, to 25 in a game like condition starters always lose. You know, the, it's always the other side of the net that wins. And I always go, why is this happening? You know, so it's just kind of uncanny how that always works. So I. It is interesting about beach, too, because like like John said, 
you are playing instead of you're playing against your opponents. So it'd be like USC and UCLA practicing against each other all the time. And so mixing it does get kind of interesting. <laughs> yeah. But on your, it would be, I, I would think that if I were, if I were the, if I were UCLA, you know, and I, and I was training and I had eight guys, I mean, you know, I'd want, I'd want to mix my teams from time to time. I think that would be a huge benefit. Mm. Yeah. We, uh, so I think when we started this podcast, I don't know, was it four years ago, Billy, three or four years ago? Yeah. Um, it, it was just me, Billy and Nils and we talk about topics. And one of our first episodes was actually on your, your blog, uh, on mixing, on team mixing. And we had a big discussion and debated and, uh, went back and forth. And I don't think we ever thought like three or four years later, we'd get a chance to sit here and ask you all these, uh, crazy questions and have you spend the time with us to answer them. So it's, it's really cool to for me to have spent this time with you and to, to learn from you and to see uh, where the podcast has come. So just, yeah, thanks for spending the time with us. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's been fun. Uh, you know, um, I give a lot of credit to Carl. He, he created a, a passion in, in me to pursue this understanding. And I've, I've probably taken it maybe a little bit too far at times. Um, but um, I've really, I think Tom may have told you that I've become, uh, well, actually he and I are both very interested in uh, how dynamic systems theory is impacting our coaching principles and methods. Um, it's, a, it's a really fascinating area. Um, our own laboratory at the University of Washington is very much interested in complexity theory as it relates to, you know, you know, cell signaling and, you know, stuff like that. But turns out that um, uh, complexity theory is becoming very important in terms of how we understand um, how the brain works and, um, you know, how we organize movements and things like that. It's had a, it's actually had a big impact on, on how we, how we train our kids. Yeah, you sent me that article on dynamical systems, and I think I've uh, I can understand about fifteen words so far. So I'm I'm making my way through it, but uh, it was a little intimidating. But I, I appreciate you sharing it, and hopefully uh, I'll learn more and I'll get better. Well, I'm I'm working on an outline um, of the of the impact of dynamic systems on coaching principles. So if I can get it done, I'll send that to you yeah once you kind of put it in some layman's terms i'm ready to read it so please please send it my way okay i will well thanks again for the time and all the knowledge and sharing uh yeah all that you've learned and we really appreciate it well i'm uh i'm very appreciative and flattered that um you would have me on i enjoy talking about this stuff and um maybe we can do it again sometime 